I love the words of that song because I think that we all need reminders from time to time. You know, it's fascinating to me how from the very beginning, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, humanity has been in a battle for understanding truth. And what the devil loves to do to attack your life is to get you to believe a lie. And so all week long, he's been attacking your mind with thoughts that are against the knowledge of God. That's that's what spiritual warfare is. Thoughts that acknowledge themselves against the knowledge of God. He tells you that you're never going to be good enough and that you'll never be free and that you'll never have a breakthrough, that you'll never have resources, that your marriage is not going to last, your children won't serve the Lord, that your body will never be healed. And on and on and on, he tries to convince you that your problems are big and that your God is small. And why worship is so important is because it reframes life. David said, praise the Lord, I tell myself. Let's exalt his name together. When we exalt the name of the Lord, when we magnify him, we're giving him the praise and the honor and the glory that he deserves and reminding ourselves that our God is big and our problems are small and that there's nothing in this life that can overcome us. My favorite verse is Revelation chapter 1, one of my favorites. It's certainly my favorite Easter verse. And in the New King James Version, verse 18, Jesus said, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And it's so good, Jesus just stops in the middle of his sermon and amens himself. Amen. I get it. Sometimes, like the nine o'clock service today, you're just preaching your heart out and people are just staring at you. So Jesus just took care of it. He was like, amen. That's good. We live in a culture that tries to tell you that there's many ways to God, that we're connecting with a higher power, that we just have to channel something to touch something bigger than us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Every other world religion's founder is dead. Ours was dead, but he ain't dead no more. He is alive forevermore. And that same life, that same power that raised him from the dead lives on the inside of us. Here's why that's important, he says. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus says, I've overcome everything that would come against you. The devil can't overcome your life. He can't destroy your home. He doesn't even have the keys of his own house. And today I think we need to just reframe life and remember we may be in dark moments. I'm not making light of the pain and the suffering that you might be walking through today. But I want to remind you that Jesus paid the price to overcome it. And the Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We need to stand on the truth that sets us free. The key to the valley seasons of life is that you just keep moving. Because he's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's always there. 
Come on, just take a minute to open your heart and tell the Lord how much you love him. Give him the place of honor that he deserves. God, we just remind ourselves that you are so great. We thank you that you're alive today and that that power is available to every person in this place. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would touch every one of us. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, that you are in this service today as you inhabit the praises of your people, that you're touching us, healing us, delivering us. We honor you. We lift you up. God sent his son. And they called him Jesus. And he came to love. This is Jesus' ministry. To heal and forgive. He didn't come to make you sorry. He came to set you free. And I, come on, sing it if you know it. To buy my pardon and an empty grave is there to prove my Jesus lives. Come on, every voice at every campus, because he lives. today. Lord, we thank you for every single person that's in your presence today. What an honor it is to spend these moments in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God, we don't deserve for you to love us 
And yet you care about every person in this place. We thank you that you see us right in our point of need and that you're moving and working by the power of the Holy Spirit even in these moments we have together to touch us, to restore us, to heal us. So God, we declare our complete dependency upon you. The Holy Spirit's here. He's moving in somebody's heart. He's he's healing that wound of rejection. He's removing that anxiety, that fear that cripples your life. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to move and to work in the ways only you can. We invite you to come and teach us the word. As we open it up, we thank you that you'll make it come to life today. Help us to be transformed. One more time, we say what an honor it is to be in the presence of the Lord. We love you today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said amen. Amen. Come on, one more time, give me praise. You can grab your seats at all of our campuses. Want to say hello. Welcome, welcome. Man, it's an honor to have you in the house today. There's nothing like being in church and worshiping with God's people. I love it with all of my heart. Want to say hello to our church family meeting at other campuses. It's great to have you with us today. Those who are watching online, we love you so much. Thank you for taking time to tune in. Of course, the correctional facilities all across the state. The people here at Olson Farms in additional seating out in the cafe. Come on, church, let's put our hands together. Welcome each other today. It's great to have you with us. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. And as you do that, I want to just take just a moment to speak to our Olson Farms church family. Listen, I know that uh, 11 o'clock is extremely convenient, but I have to ask you for an incredible favor. We have a Mudsock campus just down the street that is thriving and exploding. And if you live anywhere near 96 in Hague as your pastor, would you please consider attending that campus just for a couple of weeks? See if it fits. If it doesn't, come on back to Olson Farms. That's fine. Or maybe pray about being one of the super spiritual people and coming to church at one o'clock in the afternoon or at 4.30 in the afternoon because we need seats to preach the gospel and to reach as many people as possible. And uh, we're trying to solve the problem of not enough seats and we're working hard at it. But until we get to the place that we have more seats, maybe y'all could help us out just a little bit. So pray about it and do whatever the Lord leads you to do. We're in part two of a series called Don't Settle, a little relationship marriage series. And last week we started talking about a very famous family, how Abraham, the God of Uh, or or excuse me, the godfather of the nation of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, began this trip to the promised land, but his dad, Terah, was in charge at the time. And then Terah came to this city called Haran, which was named after his dead son, the place that reminded him of relational pain and tragedy. And the Bible tells us that he settled there. And so we've been talking about settling and how it can keep us from God's best for our lives. And so last week we talked about don't settle for the pain, don't settle for the past. Today we're going to take it another step further and talk to all the single folks in the house 
Today's message is titled, Don't Settle for the Wrong Person. Don't settle for the wrong person. And I, I, uh, I want you to know I'm going to preach the truth today from God's word. I'm not intentionally going to be offensive, but I pray that it encourages you and strengthens you. You might not like some of the things I have to say, but I will pastor you well. My name is Dave. I am your friend. I do love you, and I'm trying to help you today. For all of you who are uh, not really in the dating scene or trying to get married yet, I just want you to know there's great relationship principles here. And then for all of you who are already married, there's some wonderful things that we can glean from this to make our marriages even stronger. And so I think there's something in this text for all of us today. We're going to go to Ruth chapter 1. And we're just going to kind of work our way through this amazing love story between Ruth and Boaz. But the first thing I want to do is back up just one verse to the very end of Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. This, of course, was the time that God would raise up judges to be the leaders in the nation of Israel. And they went through this cycle over and over. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you know what I'm talking about where the nation of Israel would surrender themselves to the covenant and to the relationship of Yahweh, the one true God, and blessings would come upon their lives. And then they'd get to that place of blessing and they'd take it all for granted and they'd think, look how great we are and all the things that we produce. And they start worshiping other gods and getting into idolatry. And then God promised that destruction would come and that oppression would come and certainly they would get invaded by other nations and things would begin to fall apart. And in the midst of all that trouble and pain, we tend to be a little more moldable and they would repent and cry out to God and he'd raise up another judge and that judge would set them free and then they'd repeat the cycle all over again. It's really actually a pretty clear picture of what's happening in America. One nation founded under God, blessed beyond measure. And then we got to the place where we decided we've built all this on our own and the principles of God are outdated and archaic and we're smarter than God. We've evolved past that. And now we see our culture crumbling into chaos. And yet I believe that God is going to raise up a generation of mighty spiritual warriors that will preach the truth and revival will come and change will come. I'm excited for all 12 of you that believe that. I'm pretty fired up about it. So when we get to the book of Ruth, we're introduced to this guy called Elimelech. And his name appropriately means God is my king. Just coming out of the judges where they had no king and everyone's kind of going in their own direction. We pick the story up. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In those days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. Pause for a minute because... The famine was a symbol in those days of the fact that they were no longer following the Lord. So when they followed God, they had prosperity and blessing and rain in the right season. The crops would produce a harvest. And so we have to assume theologically, because it's in the time of judges and they're living under this covenant, that they have wandered from the Lord, which has caused the famine. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, but their two sons were Malhan and Kilion. Now, what's interesting is those two sons, literally, in order, their names in Hebrew mean sickness and death. And that's actually what came. It's kind of prophetic for the family. They were uh, Ephratites, the Bible says, from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. They went to the wrong place. They left the promised land. They got to another place that, that had provision, but outside and from under the covering of the Lord. 
And now disaster strikes. Verse three, Elimelech died. Naomi was left with just her two sons. And the two sons married Moabite women. And one married a woman named Orpah. And then the other woman was Ruth. And about 10 years later, after the marriages took place and no children had been produced, Malhan and Kilion died. And they left Naomi all alone without sons or her husband. Now, that's devastating all by itself. But even worse, if you understand the culture and the culture of that day, that meant that there's not only no provision, like the men were the ones that did all the work back then, and then it also meant that there was no future because they had no last name, they had no sons, they had no lineage. So all of the land in Israel was divided by tribe and by family, and if there was no son with the family name to carry on that plot of land, it would go to another family, and the name would be lost, the inheritance would be lost, the future of the family would be lost. They're in a destitute place. And so now here she is left with just her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And, and Naomi is, is really in a place of crisis. We pick the story up in verse 6. It says, Naomi hears that in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people back in Judah by giving them good crops again. So obviously the cycle had continued. And now people have repented. They're coming under the favor of God. And the land is producing again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to the homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, they set out from the place where they had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes. May the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. What's fascinating to me and what jumped out at me as I was studying this passage this week is that... Here is this Israelite family. They've moved to a foreign country and their sons had married Moabite women, people that did not follow the Lord. And so Ruth and Orpah would have never heard about Yahweh, never heard about the one true God. And they would have been introduced to him in this family. And now they're headed back to the land of covenant and the land of promise, the land that was blessed by Yahweh. And yet even Naomi, as a spiritual woman, looks at the two women and says, you need to go back to where you came from. I think that's fascinating because I just wonder how many times we feel that way. How many times are we in a place of brokenness and idolatry in our own lives? All of us were there. Everyone is a sinner falling short of God's standard. And then God comes and he speaks to us and he rescues us and he adopts us into the family of God. But then somewhere along the journey of following the Lord, we reach a place where we feel like, well, there's no future. Naomi has no other sons. And even she says it in the text that we don't have time to read. I can't have more sons to give you a future husband. Like that would be weird and gross. Even if I got pregnant right now, there's no way that they would be able to like be raised and be men and then be married to you. So there's no future in me. I can't, I can't give you what you need. So there's safety in going back to the old culture, to the old gods, to the old way of doing things. There's more hope for you to get married back in the old life. And I just wonder how many singles have been sold that lie. 
God set me free and God rescued all of us from living in the world and dating like the world and living like the world. And we come and we get consecrated before God, grafted into the family of God. And we have all of these things, these blessings that God promises to bring into our lives. But some of y'all are looking around as you get a little bit older and you're looking at the body of Christ and thinking, I don't think that he or she is here. And maybe some people even in your life, you've got a Naomi in your life that may be telling you, you need to go get on that dating app. You need to go back to the club. You need to go back out into the world and find you a man, find you a woman. You can get back out there and just work it out. Because the devil wants you to believe that righteousness automatically means loneliness. If you do it right and you wait right and you look for the right man or the right woman, then it just actually that doesn't exist. So I'm destined to die alone. It's kind of the message that was being communicated to Ruth. You'll never have the, the life that you desire. You'll never have the family you desire. You'll never have the future you desire. If you do it God's way, if you just stay in church and look for a good godly woman or a good godly man, it's just there's just slim pickings, right? There's just there's not going to happen. And the reality is the clock is ticking for all of us. If you're single, you get into your early 20s and then your mid-20s and then your late 20s and then your early 30s. You start, warning, warning, this is not good. Some of you singles, have you ever traveled before? Anybody traveled before? You traveled by airplane? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody. Nobody's ever traveled. Let me tell you, when you travel, sometimes you take things with you, okay? And you put it in things called luggage. It's bags of stuff. And we try really hard to not have to check things, but every now and then we do have to because we have 87,000 people in our family and we go places. And so it takes a lot of luggage. And so you have to check it with the big bags. Well, sometimes, and if you're ever flown, you know what I'm talking about. You come to the baggage claim that's got your, your flight and you're like, okay, that's us. But our bags haven't come out yet, but there's like one bag left from the flight before. And it's just riding around the carousel all by itself. Just a lonely little piece of luggage. Some of y'all feel like that. That's me, just riding around the luggage of life. Just somebody, somebody claim me? Will somebody love me? Will somebody like me? What's wrong with me? Why am I still on the carousel? I'm getting dizzy. Some of you just tired of your aunts. Every time you go to a wedding, they're poking you going, you're next, you're next. You know how to make them stop? Start doing that to them at funerals. I felt like y'all just needed to relax for a minute. <laughs> so verse 14, the Bible says, they all wept together and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and she went back to her family, but Ruth clung tightly to her. And so begins this unbelievable journey and this incredible love story between Ruth and her future husband, Boaz. What I wanna do is just walk through the story verse by verse for the first couple of chapters and pull some principles out of characteristics, attributes of a good spouse, things that are worth waiting for. Don't settle. Verse 16, Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, that's where I'm going to die and I'll be buried there. May the Lord punish me 
severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. The first principle that you need to look for, the first characteristic is you want someone to be loyal. You want someone that's going to stand at your side. And I love this characteristic in Ruth that she's displaying just to her mother-in-law. This is not even her future spouse. This is not even her husband. But she's loyal to Naomi. And you got to love a person like that, a man or woman of loyalty. Somebody who is in it with the people in their life that says, it doesn't matter what comes. This is a covenant relationship and there's nothing you can do to kick me out of your life. I'm going to be here no matter what. Even when it doesn't benefit me, even when it means I may have to pay a price, even when it means I may not get the things that I've always dreamed of and desired, I'm staying. And I know this is unpopular in the culture that we live in today and it's certainly not meant to offend those of you that have walked the horrible and hard road of divorce. But I just want you to hear today that we believe that the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ and that we are to love our spouses like Christ loved the church. Well, the reality of that is that there is nothing the Bible says that we could ever do that would separate us from his love. There's no sin that we can get into. There's no deception that we can embrace. There's no lie that we could fall into. There's no addiction that we could embrace that God would ever say, that's enough, I can't love you anymore. And as long as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we all have to remember that we are the ultimate adulterers because we cheat on God all the time. And yet Jesus forgives and he loves. And I love that Ruth said, this thing is till death. You know, I used to do a ton of marriage counseling in the early days of our church. I don't do as much of it now, or really any of it, because we have tons of amazing people that do probably a much better job than me. I would just pick fights, which is so much fun. <laughs> you gonna take that from him? I don't think you should. And it's just, it's like, wow, this is awesome. Because we can get, I get you through about the first five years of fights in three sessions. It's fantastic. And it'll set you up for an amazing future. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, at the very last session, we'd always work through the vows. Because everybody, everybody's got their own ceremony. You know, you get on Pinterest and you'll be mixing sand together and lighting stuff on fire. And giraffes will be painting paintings. And I mean, it's a circus. Praise the Lord. Everybody's got their own deal. I've been a part of every kind of way people can express their love to each other in the marriage ceremony. But then we have the vows that we take. And the more traditional vows most people like, but it says something like, I take you, my spouse, to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in death, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. And I always would ask, can you tell me if there's anything else that I need to write in there? Because you're asking me to stand before God as a man of God and pronounce God's favor, God's blessing over this marriage. So I just want to know that you will love and cherish, richer or poor, sickness and in health, till death or What? Because it'd just be better if we wrote it in. Till death or he has a gambling addiction that loses our house and all of our money. Till death or I realize they have seven million annoying tendencies that drive me crazy. 
Like, just take the bowl from the sink and put it in the dishwasher. Why is that so hard? Just pick up your sock when you're taking it off and don't throw it on the floor. Just aim five inches right and put it in the laundry basket. What is wrong with you? Tell death or what? I know there's some things in scripture that according to the Bible, as a believer, you have good standing to end the marriage. And again, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm not trying to make you feel bad because I know there's a lot of people here that have walked this hard path. I'm just saying, we're so crazy. Kate and I are just so crazy that when we said tell death, we actually meant tell death. That includes anything that you could possibly get into, any problem, any addiction, any issue, infidelity. It doesn't matter. We have decided we are going to fight for this. We are going to work through this. It doesn't matter if you stop loving me. It doesn't matter if I drive you crazy. It doesn't matter how much counseling we have to get. It doesn't matter how many intense fellowship arguments we have. We're going to work through it. Because as Christ loved the church, I have chosen to love that woman and she has chosen to love me. And there's no end to the grace and to the love that our father has as long as we repent. And I just wonder in a culture where the church divorces at the same rate as the world, which is 51% now, over half of the marriages in the body of Christ will end in divorce. Are you hitching your wagon to somebody that says, man, there's nothing that will stop this. I'm in a covenant Till death, I'm with you till the end. I'm certainly not condoning that anyone stay in an unhealthy relationship or in an abusive environment as the church will help you. We'll come pick your stuff up and move you out. But I'm also saying that every marriage, the one that you're in is the one that's worth fighting for. I don't care if it's your second. I don't care if today you're on your fifth marriage. Let's fight for that one and let's bring godly principles into that one and let's say this one's gonna last until Jesus takes us home because it's worth fighting for. We don't have a lot of loyalty in the world that we live in today, but we see that in Ruth and it's a wonderful, incredible characteristic. So now we have Boaz enter the scene. They roll up into town. And in verse one of Ruth chapter two, it says there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Couple of things there. Not every great man has a big bank account. So what I want to do is shift from just what wealthy and influential really means. Let's jot it down as mature. You want to find a guy or a girl who is mature. Boaz is a man. He's focused on his life. He's already doing well in his job. He has influence in the world around him. He has moved out of his mother's basement and he is living his life. Can I get an amen from any ladies in the house? This is a man. What you want to marry is a person, a man or a woman, who has that confidence of knowing who they are in Christ and the call that God has for their life. Let me take you to Genesis chapter 2 for just a minute. I want to teach you a couple principles from the very first couple, and we've studied this before, but I think it's worth refreshing. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. A couple of things I want you to see. First of all, I love that God's hand was on Adam's life. God grabbed Adam and directed him to the purpose and to the calling 
that God had for his life. And young men, listen to me. If you desire to have a good Christian woman, you want to have a solid wife, you better learn how to get on your knees and fight like a man. You need to learn how to lift up your hands in holy worship. I believe that America needs a revival of men who are passionate about the things of God, passionate about the word, passionate about their homes and about their children to be who God's called us to be. I think we live in a crisis in our culture, a manufactured crisis of men no longer being the men that God has called us to be. And so Adam had the hand of God on his life. Listen, guys, I'm just telling you, there is nothing sexier to a woman who loves the Lord than a man who will lift his hands in worship and love God and actually underline things in his Bible and read the word on his own and listen to worship on his own and to have spiritual conversations that he actually initiates. Because I know this is controversial. It's shocking to me that it is. But my Bible says that the husband's supposed to be the head of his house. Now, it doesn't mean that women can't lead. Please don't hear me wrong because God knows there's some amazing female leadership in the world that makes the world a much better place. And I'm not ashamed to tell you that nearly every great idea and nearly every great ministry that we are doing at Itown was because my wife thought of it. So praise the Lord for Mama Kate and for her vision and for her heart. Women are more intuitive. She knows what we need to do. She'd be like, we need to do something about that. And I'm like, oh, we ain't got to worry about that. And six months later, the whole thing's on fire. (laughs) The voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of Kate sound exactly the same. (laughs) I've just learned how to listen better over the years. But that doesn't diminish our role as men. That doesn't mean that we take a back seat. The sin of every man is that we become passive about the things of God and passive about our children and passive about our families, passive about our homes. And I believe God's called us to be strong and to lead. A godly woman wants a man who will cover her in prayer and love her and and be the one to initiate. We got to get to church on time. We got to get these kids dressed and we got to make sure that we're headed in the right direction. And we, we need to do some devotions as a family and let me lay hands on the children and pray for them. That's what God's called us to be. That's who God's called us to be and what God's called us to do. So ladies, you want a man that's got the hand of God in his life. Listen, no missionary dating. Oh, but I can fix him. He's so cute and I promise that it'll work out and he comes to church when I really push him to and it'll be, it'll be all right. We'll get saved together and, and, then, and then we'll take this beautiful journey. No. It doesn't work. Listen, if you go fishing in the wrong pond, you're going to catch the wrong fish. (laughs) You're going to be disappointed. It's not going to be what you want it to be. The relationship, the man, I'm just telling you, you want to find yourself a godly man and is worth waiting for. Now, I want you to also notice in this text of Genesis chapter 2 that God took him, God's hand was on him, but then he took him to his purpose and he was working the garden before Eve ever entered the picture. So I know this is like, blow your mind deep, but follow me for a second. Adam had a job before he had a wife. I know. That's deep. That's deep. 
The Bible says in Proverbs 14 that all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Listen, ladies, don't listen to that silver tongue. Oh, we'll worship God together. I know I never go now, but I know I don't have any money, and I haven't had a job for five years, and I live in mom's basement. But woo, baby, I will buy you diamonds, and I will sell you the moon, and life is going to be great if you just give me a chance. Uh Uh-uh. Get a job. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, the Lord said, it's not good for this guy to be alone. He is a mess. He'll never find his keys. He'll never show up on time. His life will be a disaster. The animals will be in chaos. I will make him a helper suitable. Now, I don't know if you find humor in scripture, but this to me is one of the most amazing and hilarious passages ever. Because right after this in verses 19, 20, 21, God brings all the animals in front of Adam for him to name all the animals. And at the end it says, and no suitable helper was found. And I'm just like, praise God for that. Because if the Lord was like, yeah, donkey will work. You can have a dog, that'll be fine. Like we would have never gotten women. So while I'm upset with Adam for the fact that he sinned and brought all this brokenness into the world, praise the Lord that he didn't like any of the animals because that gave us a woman, praise the Lord. Thank God for that. So God put him into a sleep and took his rib And then in verse 22, he brought the woman that he had made out of that rib and he brought her to the man. Now you need to embrace this because I know, I know this is, seems crazy and it's countercultural, but I promise you the word works. So if you'll focus on your purpose, Adam was focused on his purpose. And when he was living out his purpose and pursuing God and being diligent with what the Lord had trusted him to, God brought Eve into his life when he was ready. He didn't have to break his neck. He didn't have to sign up for dating websites. He didn't have to, where is she? I don't know what she's, I got to go to the club and I got to get in this group and I got to go to this. No, he didn't have to do that. God just said, here she is. Now you're ready. And that's what, that's our story. I was living in the Philippines as a missionary, having completely given up on the dating scene because I knew that it was broken and dumb. And I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. I definitely don't want to be single for the rest of my life, but that's not going to work. And so I just focused on the call that God had for my life. And I went to the Philippines to learn how to preach and how to do ministry and how to love people. At the same time, unbeknownst to me, my wife had made the exact same decision. And while we were living thousands of miles apart on two different sides of planet Earth, God connected us through friends. Because at the moment that we were ready for one another, God brought us across each other's paths. And I believe he'll do the same for you, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. Verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2, back to our text. He was this wealthy guy, an influential guy, but more importantly, he was a relative of Naomi's husband. Jot this down if you're taking notes. He was available. What it means is he was available. I know, again, I don't understand how this could possibly be controversial, but you need to understand the best person for you is not someone who's already in a relationship with someone else. Cause, cause, can I just help you for a minute? If, if he'll cheat on her with you, then he'll cheat on you with someone else. Because cheaters be cheating. That's how it goes. I'm not saying God can't change and redeem people. I'm just saying that's kind of a horrible way to start your marriage. Guys, a woman who's already married is not your future spouse. God's not going to bless that. Man, it's quiet in this Baptist church. That's all right. 
It's Bible, so it's fine. So in their culture, they had a marriage custom that said, if everybody in the family as a man died who could pass the last name on, then you could have a close relative called a kinsman redeemer who would come in and marry the wife of the man who had passed. But their children would not take on the last name of the man who had married the widow. The last name would actually be from the passed away father, the dead father, so that the name of that family could be preserved, their legacy could be preserved, their future and their land could be preserved. And so Boaz was that. Boaz was available. He was eligible because he was in that arena of those family ties. He was related to Elimelech, and so he could become a kinsman redeemer. Verse 2. So one day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest field to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi said, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in the field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, what she's doing is, this is what people in their culture would do who were uh, uh, poor or people who had immigrated foreigners into their nation. In Leviticus chapter 23, this is the covenant, the law that she's functioning in. It says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of the fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it there for the poor and for the foreigners who are living among you, which Ruth was both. And so she was operating under this Old Testament law that allowed her the opportunity to come into Boaz's field and to collect from the corners of the field and any grain that the harvesters had dropped. Verse five, Boaz Caesar, and he's like, hey, what's up? <laughs> Jot it down if you're taking notes. He was interested, interested. Listen to me. It don't matter how old you are. Don't settle for somebody that you're like, eh. they're alive. I know how girl, Kate had a list. It was like long, a list. These are all the things that I want from a husband. These are the things I'm praying for. Some of you have a list, and the list goes like this. You're like, Lord, I, I need to love the Lord, love kids, be passionate. Lord, I'll just take somebody that loves the Lord. Lord, I'll just take anybody that's breathing. Is he alive? No, you need to be interested. Never settle for the wrong person. And you want to be desirable to them. Don't marry somebody that thinks that you're the settle, that's not really interested in you. Listen, I know, again, ladies, guys don't like desperate women. I'll call him, I'm going to text him a hundred times, I'll blow him up. We're in this weird culture that it just kind of twisted some things. And I'm just telling you, even comedians still laugh about it. Smothering a man is not the way to win him over. One of the, my, my wife and I had emailed back and forth for a long time, and then she finally actually came over uh, to the Philippines so I could see her face to face, and I had flown in from Hong Kong. My flight was delayed and late, and I could not wait to meet her for the very first time, and she couldn't wait to meet me, but she acted like she didn't care, and she went to bed, and I didn't get to see her until the next morning, and it drove me crazy. I wanted her so much more. Because she wasn't just waiting at the door like, I can't wait to meet you. It's so amazing. She was like, whatever. 
She played hard to get a little bit. Interested. You need to be interested. And, and let me just help you a little bit too because God just made us the way that we are. Okay, and there's some things that are not okay. There's some sinful parts of all of our lives, but there's a natural attraction that people have. Okay, y'all hear me? So there's just people that you're attracted to. God put that there. So I didn't care how much she loved the Lord until I knew whether or not she was fine. Because if this don't work, then nothing else is gonna work. I'm trying to set y'all religious people free for a moment. You probably heard the, past, the, the story of the old evangelist that was getting older and older, and they said, look, just you need to marry anybody. In fact, you should just marry this woman over here. She can play the piano. He's like, but she's not pretty. They were like, it don't matter that she's pretty. She can play the piano. She'll help your ministry. So he married that woman, and every day he rolled over and looked at her and said, oh, my God, woman, please go play the piano. Ladies, you need to be attracted to him. You need to find him fascinating. They need to be interesting to you. And not just physically, emotionally, intellectually. They need to capture your attention. We, we first of all, exchange lots of pictures because we all know how this works. This was even before lots of social media. I think it was like MySpace back then. Weird times, right? We had dial-up internet. For those of you who don't understand what that means, you plug the phone into your computer and you dialed one of 14 numbers because not all of them worked all the time. And then it go, ER, ER. <laughs> and then if you send a picture, God help you because it go, chook, 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 chook. You just start downloading that thing, go make dinner. So the very first time we exchanged email addresses, we were like, pictures first. Praise the Lord. And I was like, hmm. So then I was like, you need to send more pictures. Because we all know everybody's got that one picture from 27 years ago, from that perfect angle that you put on all your social media. And we meet you in person. We're like, uh-uh. No, that ain't. No. That was like your, you and your friend. And you cut out yourself and left your friend in the picture. Like, this ain't, you know how people will do that? They'll put two people in the picture. You're like, which one are they? I don't know. So I was like, more pictures, please, more pictures. And so when I was begging for more pictures, she sent me a picture one day. She was like, I thought I just looked so hot this morning. So, you know, I just had a really good hair day. And so I sent this picture to you. Man, I was so excited to download it. It was a picture of her dog. And I fell so in love with her. I was like, man, I love that personality. You got to be interested, interested. Verse six, the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab that came back with Naomi. And she asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. And she's been hard at work all day ever since, except for a few minutes of rest in the shelter. The thing that we see about Ruth is that she was disciplined. You want somebody who's disciplined. You don't want to marry somebody who's lazy. You want to marry somebody who gets out of bed and does the laundry and takes care of themselves physically because a lack of discipline can bleed over into every area of life. And man, it can be a problem for you. You want somebody, husband and wife, who's motivated, has dreams, has goals, has a passion. The Bible says without vision, things die. 
So you got to have a vision of what you're pursuing together as a couple and vision of things that you desire to accomplish in this life. It's what it, it breathes life and energy. And some of you as couples, you need to start dreaming again. You need to start thinking about the things that you'd like to accomplish together as a couple and then set disciplinary goals in your life that will help you to achieve the things that you long to do because it's such an important foundation for marriage. Verse 8. So Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather the grain so you don't go to any other fields, okay? You stay right here with the young woman working in my field. I would put that down as confident, confident. Because honestly, I think this is kind of where guys usually lose it in, in a little bit of today's culture. Like we see a girl like, ooh, she fine. So we'll talk to everybody. We'll stalk you on Instagram and Facebook and what do they like and where do they go and who do they hang out with. And we'll see them at church. We'll just be staring at them from across the way and then staring at them in the lobby, staring at them at different events and circles. But we don't ever talk to them. <laughs> Boaz was just like, what? Who? Who? What? Who? Who's this? Uh-huh. And then he just rolled over. He's like, hey, girl, this is what I'm saying. He started hollering at her, like, right away. Hey, you need to stay. Don't you be wandering away to other people's fields. You stay right here. He had a conversation with her. Guys, you ready to be married? Fall in love with Jesus. Get a job. Move out of mom's basement. Sell all of your gaming systems. Brush your teeth. Comb your hair. Iron your shirt. Come to church and ask a girl out. It's pretty easy. And then listen, one day... When you have children, you will name him Dave because I helped you. That'll be the reason. You gotta actually have a conversation. And I'm just telling you so much of the problems that we see in today's culture and relationships, especially in marriages, is that people have no idea who they are. They have no confidence in Christ, riddled with insecurity. And we come into these marriages, like we talked about so many times, full of pain and brokenness, hoping that that individual, that husband or that wife would actually be our savior and make us okay. And I'm just telling you, no human can do that for you. We have got to have a confidence of who we are in Christ, what we're called to do, the gifts that we have, what we offer. We need to understand who we are and have not arrogance, but confidence. Verse 9. See which part of the field, he, Boaz speaking to Ruth, that they're harvesting and then follow them. And I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, you can help yourself to the water that they've drawn. It, what he's demonstrating for us is that he was thoughtful. He's thoughtful. He's thinking about how young men in the field may harass her a little bit. And there might be some trouble down her way. So he's trying to help solve some problems for her in life. And he's trying to make sure that she's able to collect the grain that she needs. And he wants to make sure that her needs are met. You can come over here and get water anytime you want. And, and I'm just telling you, we need to make sure that we have people in our lives. Like when you're thinking about marrying someone, they, you don't want to marry a selfish person. Because there's a lot of selfish people. Selfishness and narcissism are plaguing our culture, probably the fastest growing disease besides victimization in our world today. And if you marry one of those people, you, you just like adding yourself to their story because they're the main character of everything. And that's going to be a miserable marriage because the best marriages are two servants who are in love and thinking about how to serve and how to meet the needs of the other. And I'm just telling you, it's not going to change. It just is what it is. 
Here's the truth. Let me, let me give it to you nice and straight. Every guy marries a girl hoping that she'll never change, but she does. And every woman marries a man hoping that he will change, and he never does. <laughs> it's just true. And every frustrated wife said amen, because every man is on a journey from where he is to where his wife wants him to be. But the truth is, if he's not thoughtful now or if he's selfish now, it'll be the same on the other side and vice versa. We, we have to understand that it, we need to be thoughtful. We need to be caring. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz called her, come over here and help yourself to the food. He understands. She's here all by herself. She doesn't have anybody to eat with, probably didn't bring a lunch. And so he's providing for her and he's helping her. He's including her. She ate all that she wanted and she still had some left over. Verse 15, so when Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and then just drop them on purpose for her and let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. What we see here is that he was generous, generous. And I'm telling you, as we talked about earlier in the service, you want somebody that has a heart of generosity. Here's why. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, it says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Listen, if they squeak when they walk, you're headed to a miserable existence because you don't want to be in a fight over, hey, the tithe is the Lord's and we need to give that first 10% and your spouse is saying, what are you, stupid? Are you crazy? We ain't giving that much to the church. That's insane. Well, now you've got a problem. There's going to be some friction. If you are thinking, man, how can we serve and how can we make a difference and we want to add things to the foster closet and we want to go be generous with our time and serve and feed your neighbor and, and make a difference in leading a circle and jump on the go team and your spouse is saying, man, I got things to do. I got a life to live and stingy with their time and selfish in the way they see things and we don't want to give and I don't want to meet the needs of that person in line that we may need to pay for their groceries and I don't want to give above and beyond in the vision offering and I just don't want to be a part of those things. I'm just telling you. You won't see the blessing of God on your life as maybe you've dreamed. You want somebody who's generous. I'm so thankful for Kate because every year we, we, we pray and we talk about what we're giving and how we're giving and who we're giving to and what it's going to look like. And every time she gives more than I do. I love how she challenges my generosity. As a family, we love to be generous to the world around us. And I'm just telling you, it brings the blessing and the favor of God. Verse 23, I'm almost done. It says, so Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working all the way through the wheat harvest in the early summer. The thing I want you to see is that both of them were patient. Patient. There's no reason to rush things. It's a long period of time. They're getting to know each other. They're working alongside each other. They're, they're, they're finding out these different things in each other's lives. There's nothing wrong with that. Listen, ladies. To recap, Boaz was a mature man, a wealthy man, a confident man, a thoughtful man, a generous man, a patient man. That equals a husband. It's <laughs> the kind of guy you're looking for. And I just want to encourage you because I know that we live in a culture, guys and girls alike, that it's sometimes it's, we get a lot of pressure to settle. Friday night comes and we got nothing to do. And all of our half-saved friends are 
going out to the club and having fun. You're thinking, man, I don't really feel like I belong in that environment, but I'm tired of being alone. I'm not sure what this looks like. There's a lot of temptation to compromise. You just need to wait. Wait, ladies, for your Boaz. Because he's worth waiting for. Now, if you don't wait for Boaz, you may end up with some of his relatives. Now, all the religious people, I want you to spell it with me. B-O-A-Z. B-O-A-Z. Boaz. But here's some of his relatives you could end up with if you're not careful. Broke as. Poaz. Lion as. Cheating as. Dumb as. Drunk as. Cheap as. Turn to somebody and say, I dated him. Locked up as. Good for nothing as. Lazy as. Come on, ladies, wait on your Boaz and make sure he respects your ass. There's your word. Every now and then we like to send our religious missionaries off to another church. Last verse, I promise. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time. It's time. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath. Put on perfume. And wear your nicest clothes. How many of y'all thankful for a spouse that takes a bath every now and then? Like once or twice a week. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's Bible. What I want you to see is that there's just, there's an effort that it takes to make marriages great. Jot it down if you're taking notes. We just need to be committed. And I just want to encourage you, those of you that are already married, and maybe your marriage is not in a super great place in this season. I just want to encourage you, if all of us would continue with the same effort that we gave to get into the marriage after we're in the marriage, you would have the marriage that you've always dreamed of. Because we dress nice and we dress up pretty and we get ourselves smelling good and we put on our best behavior and we think outside the box and we plan all these moments together. But then once we get married, for some reason, it seems like we quit trying. And if we would just recapture that first love and the energy that it took to get us to the place that we're at, I promise you'd have an amazing marriage. And the last thought I want to leave you with is don't discount the wisdom of those that have gone before you. Ruth listened to Naomi. And as the story plays out, not only did she win her Boaz, but as a Moabite woman, she ended up in the lineage of Jesus, the savior of the world, because God can redeem and save anybody. Boaz was worth waiting for. And so too is your future spouse. But I'm just telling you, if you think your parents are crazy, young people, just wait. The older you get, the smarter they will become. You might think they're stupid now, but someday you're going to go, oh, God gave them to you for a reason. If you just listen to them and the wisdom of those around you, it could save you a lot of heartache. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to take a minute before we leave to pray over the singles of our church and the marriages of our church. But before we do that, I just wonder how many are here at any of our campuses today, watching online or in the correctional facility, 
and you're far from God. I just want you to know that none of these things in marriage are possible without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't develop any of these characteristics without him. And it's what we need to have healthy marriages and healthy relationships. No matter where you find yourself in the journey of faith today, I want you to know that the Lord's not mad at you. He's not trying to get even with you, trying to punish you. He wants to redeem you, to touch your life, to give you the life that you've always dreamed of, maybe the marriage that you've always dreamed of, but he has to be first. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, Dave, I I need healing. I need restoration. I need the Lord to touch me. I need God to empower me so that I can have the things that you're talking about. I want to pray with you. As campus pastors are joining me on the stage, we're not going to make you stand or come to the front. I'm not trying to single you out. I just want to connect you with Jesus today. And if that's you, at every campus, would you take just a minute to lift your hand up high Wherever you're at, say, Dave, that's me. I need a fresh start. I need Jesus to heal me, to touch me, to rescue me. Come on, all across the room at every campus right now. Just put your hand up high. Yeah. It's awesome. So proud of you. You can put your hands down if you haven't already. Here's what we'll do. I'm going to lead you in this simple prayer. You can pray it quietly in your heart. You just need to mean it. Just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me today. For all of my sin, I repent. I invite you into my life to take control. Be my Lord. Change me. Heal me. Empower me to live for you. Then just whisper to heaven, just tell him, God, I give you my life. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for the singles of our church today. I ask that you would touch them and encourage them and strengthen them. Give them the boldness, God, to live a righteous life that is incredibly countercultural in today's world. We thank you that you have a purpose for each and every one of them. And as they focus on that purpose, that you will orchestrate the steps of their life. We thank you that you know that special someone for them. And that you're already even working behind the scenes of their life to help them cross paths. Help us to embrace your word and the principles of it to live righteous lives. God, we thank you for the marriages of our church. We pray that you would help us to continue to embrace these wonderful principles that helped us to begin the marriage that we're in. Help us to love and honor and cherish and value that precious spouse, our husbands, our wives. Just like Christ loved the church, you said that the world would see God's love for them and how we treat one another in our marriages. Let the marriages of I-Town be a testimony to the gospel to the world around us. God, we thank you for how good you are. We love you today. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said amen. Amen. Come on, would you celebrate with those who prayed that prayer today? Thank you so much for joining iTown Church online today. We would love to have the chance to meet you and your family in person at one of our campuses. Or, of course, you can join us streaming live online this weekend. Now, for more details about times and locations and even some of our streaming options, you can go to itownchurch.com. I sure hope to see you soon. 
God bless.